A lot of books and articles these days begin with the title, The Diary Of. The Diary Of. And it is a helpful little book on how to live each day with rejoicing and gladness called Every Day Deserves a Chance. Max Lacano relates some excerpts from The Diary of a Dog. The Diary of a Dog. 8 a.m., oh boy, dog food, my favorite. 9.30 a.m., oh boy, a car ride, my favorite. 9.40, oh boy, a walk, my favorite. 10.30 a.m., oh boy, another car ride, my favorite. 11.30 a.m., oh boy, more dog food, my favorite. 12 p.m., oh boy, the kids, my favorite. 1 p.m., oh boy, the yard, my favorite. 4 p.m., oh boy, the kids again, my favorite. 5 p.m., oh boy, dog food again, my favorite. 5.30 p.m., oh boy, mom, my favorite. 6 p.m., oh boy, playing ball, my favorite. 8.30 p.m., oh boy, sleeping in my master's bed, my favorite. Lakato also includes some excerpts from the diary of a cat. Day 283 of my captivity. <laughs> I don't even know if I can get through this. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while I am forced to eat dry cereal. I'm sustained by the hope of escape and the mild satisfaction I derive from running a ruining a few pieces of furniture. Tomorrow I may eat another houseplant. I attempted to kill my captors this morning by weaving through their walking feet. Nearly succeeded. Must try this strategy at the top of the stairs. Seeking to disgust and repulse these vile oppressors, I once again induce myself to vomit on their favorite chair. Must try this on their bed. To display my diabolical disposition, I decapitated a mouse and deposited the headless body on their kitchen floor. They only cooed and condescended, patting my head and calling me a strong little kitty. Hmm, not working according to my plan. During a gathering of their accomplices, they placed me in solitary confinement. I overheard that my confinement was due to my power of allergies. Must learn what this means and how to use it to my advantage. I am convinced the other household captives are flunkies, perhaps even snitches. The dog is routinely released and seems naively happy to return. He is no doubt a halfwit. The bird speaks with, human regularly, speaks with humans regularly must be an informant. I am certain he reports my every move. Due to his current placement in the metal cage, his safety is assured, but I can't wait. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> now, if we were to be honest about our thoughts and what our attitudes, I wonder how our diaries might read. Are we people who find joy in life, or do you need to spy out the potential obstacles that could create problems and even before they become problems. The Apostle Paul was concerned about this very thing when he wrote to the believers at Philippi. So please turn to the fourth chapter of Philippians. We'll be looking at verse 5. I want to begin at verse 4 where we spent some, some time last week about what it means to be spiritually stable. And we're going to see what Paul wants us to understand and what he wants us to apply to our lives, beginning at, at verse 4 again, just for refresher. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Then he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord 
is near. In, this, in these first nine verses, Philippians chapter 4, Paul is giving the Philippians a major attitude adjustment. An attitude adjustment. He's showing them that their attitudes, what they do, what they say, how they respond, and how they act, all begins with how they think. Jesus says, as a man think, or the proverb says, as a man thinks he is in his heart, so is he. We are what we think we are. And so in verse 5, Paul is showing us with the right kind of thinking, when we are anxious for nothing, when our minds dwell on the right kinds of things, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and those kind of things, with this kind of thinking, we exhibit a gentle spirit. We will be people of gentle character, a gentle spirit, gentleness. We will be people of gentle spirits. I've called verse 5, Philippians chapter 4, a diary of gentleness or a diary of a gentle spirit. How would the diary of a gentle spirit read? What would it reveal about the character of the person who wrote it? What would it reveal about the, the attitudes and, and the thinking of the person who wrote it? In other words, if someone were to read the diary of a gentle spirit, what would they know about the person who wrote it? Verse 5 of Philippians chapter 4 is another command. The command in verse 4 was to rejoice in the Lord always. The command here is, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. It's an imperative. It's a command. And Paul makes it a command because it's a necessity for spiritual stability, to stand firm in the Lord. And so he's showing us we'd better understand what this means and what it looks like. If it was written in a diary to be made known to all men, and that's a scary thought, that our thoughts are really an open book to people. They can tell by our countenance. They can tell by our actions. They can tell by our, our attitudes. Our attitudes betray more about us than, than we can even imagine. So first of all, Paul gives us the command so we might resolve to be known for gentleness, and then he's going to give us a reason for the resolve. So first of all, we have the command. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The word translated gentle spirit or gentleness, as it is in some of the translations, it's not an easy word to translate. It's a Greek word. I won't give you that word right now. The, the King James Version translates it moderation. Uh, others translate it forbearance or gentle forbearance. Others just gentleness. And even though the Greek word is difficult to translate into English, and I'm not going to confuse you with the word at this point, but we, we get a lot of help of understanding the meaning of what Paul wants us to know by looking at how the Greek, translate, how the Greek word was translated in the Old Testament, in the Greek version. So I want you to turn back to the book of Psalms, the 86th Psalm. Psalm 86. Somebody was saying this morning that our new Bibles in the, the racks are hard to open. Uh, the Bible I'm using still kind of sticks together in the Psalms. That's not a good thing. need to be reading more Psalms. 86 Psalm, uh, verse 5. When you find that, keep your finger in there for a moment because I want you to know that uh, about 200 years before the birth of Christ, before Jesus came into this world, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was translated into the Greek language of the day. 
because the Greek language was the language of the majority of the people, the language of commerce, the language of trade, the language of religion and government. And that Greek translation was called the Septuagint, which means the 70. Sometimes in Christian writings, you'll just see it as Roman numerals LXX, the, the seven, 70. And in the 86th Psalm of the, the Septuagint, we find the same Greek word that Paul uses to write to the Philippians concerning gentleness, forbearance, moderation. And before I read it, we need to understand that in every use of the word in ancient Greek, in every use of the word in the Septuagint, in the Hebrew writings, the word translated gentleness in Philippians is always used to refer to God. Up to this point, it's something that's always used to refer to the nature, the character of God. And we have an example of this in Psalm 86, verse 5. Now listen to how the psalmist refers to the character of God. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Somewhere in the translation of that verse of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, we find the word that Paul uses for gentleness. Which word do you think it is? Well, we have goodness, we have ready to forgive, we have abundant kindness. Uh, some translations use the word mercy there. Time for the Jeopardy music. Which word is it? And the answer is, what is ready to forgive? Ready to forgive. When the translators came to the Hebrew in this psalm, and they came to the word for forgive in Hebrew, they say, chose the same Greek word that Paul uses over in Philippians for gentleness or gentle forbearance. They could have chosen three or four different words for forgiveness, but they chose a word that they wanted specifically to refer to the character of God in this case. And the idea is that even when God is wronged, when God is maligned, when he is misunderstood, he is still characterized by what we could call his gentle forbearance in the matter. Paul is commanding us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, to manifest something of the character of God here. When we are maligned, when we are misunderstood, when we are mistreated, we are to manifest the character of God, which is gentle forbearance. We don't try to retaliate. We don't seek for revenge. We don't demand our pound of flesh for what's been done to us. We don't try to get back in any other way, but we, gent with gentleness, we forbear it. You know, if God didn't manifest this in his character, if he didn't manifest gentle forbearance, quite frankly, we'd be dodging lightning bolts on a regular basis. You know, sometimes we ask, why didn't God do something about something? such and such, that's because he is a God of gentle forbearance. Instead, he is a God who is good, ready to forgive, full of loving kindness to those who will call upon him. Now, gentle forbearance refers to the exact opposite of a spirit of contention and self-seeking, all that stuff that Paul's been dealing with here in the Philippians. So we need to understand, though, that it does not refer to a wet, dishrag kind of gentleness that does not require strength and resolve any more than God would be a wet dishrag kind of person in his nature and character. Because our example of this is always is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, 
Paul referred to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There's that word gentleness again, same word. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now the word translated meekness there was used in ancient Greek of a powerful stallion, a powerful horse which has been trained. And those of you who train horses, we have several people here this morning that, that train horses. And so you can take all of that power, all of that strength of that stallion, and when that horse is trained, he is meek. And so meekness in the scriptures refers to strength and power which is under control. Strength and power which is under control. It's not a wet dish rag, wilt under pressure kind of thing at all. It's quite the opposite. And gentle forbearance is how Jesus exhibited his meekness. It's how Jesus exhibited his strength and power under control. And that's what is meant by the meekness of Christ. When Christ was on the cross, he could have called what? 10,000 angels. The Christ who created the whole universe was power under control when he died on the cross for our sins. That's the meekness of Christ. And that's what the Apostle Peter said of the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. You don't need to turn to it. Peter said, And while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. That's gentle forbearance. That's power under control. While suffering, he uttered no threats. That's gentle forbearance. That's power under control. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. So what does gentle forbearance look like in our own lives? What does it look like in the character of our lives as our diaries are read and known by all men? We know that we manifest something to the character of God. We know that our example, as in all things, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it look like in our own lives? Let me ask it this way, since Paul asked it, or stated it this way. What do most of us want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? You want to be known for your extraordinary good looks? Well, for me, that's too late. But I guess some do. You see people on TV and other places all the time. Do you want to be known for your quick wit, your sense of humor, your wisdom, your intellect? Do you want to be known for your skills, for your talents? Do you want to be known for your wealth or maybe your family connections? Or perhaps you are more pious and you want to be known for your prayer life or for your excellent skills as a leader or, or a Bible teacher. Many a preacher wants to be known for his preaching. That's really a sad state of affairs. One of my professors used to say, I know the gospel is true because it has withstood 2,000 years of poor preaching. <laughs> that brings us down to earth. What do you want to be known, known for? What would the diary of your heart reveal? And the sad fact is that even in our highest and best motives are so easily eroded by self-interest. And we tend to overlook this painful reality. Paul cuts to the heart of the issue. Be known for the gentle forbearance of others. In practical terms, we could say it this way. Don't be known for anything that begins with the word self or contains the word self in it. The self-sins are the opposite of meekness and gentleness. D.A. Carson, the great Bible scholar, says, the self-sins are tricky things, damnable, treacherous. 
And in his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer writes, To be specific, the self-sins are these. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence and self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our nature to come to our attention till the light of God is focused upon them. The grosser manifestations of these sins, egotism, exhibitionism, self-promotion, are strangely tolerated in Christian leaders, even in circles of impeccable orthodoxy. Promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is currently so common as to excite little notice. You'd never know. He wrote that almost 60 years ago. It's just as true today. So what does gentle forbearance look like in our own lives? I looked up the hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Savior, written by Kate Barkley in our hymn book. And she puts it this way. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only in his power. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. And then he adds in verse 5, he gives us the motivation for this, the specific reason why we can pursue this, why we can obey this command. Paul simply says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. What would we say? What would we do? How would it affect our thinking if we really understood that the Lord is near? I used to like to say this to, to youth groups. Where would you go? What would you do? What would you say if you really knew that Jesus was going with you? I think of the story of little Bobby. Little Bobby had the habit of stretching the truth just a bit. One day, walking home from school, he saw a large black dog run across the street in front of him. He rushed home as fast as he could, and he told his mother, Mom, you're not going to believe what I just saw. What, what did you see, Bobby? His mother asked cautiously. While I was walking home, a huge black bear jumped out of the bushes and tried to eat me. But I was too fast for him and ran home as fast as I could. By, the time his, by this time, his mother was somewhat distraught and began to worry about Bobby's truth stretching. When Bobby's father returned home from a business trip the next day, Bobby excitedly ran to his father. He told him his adventurous walk on the way home from school. The father promptly instructed Bobby to go to his room, get down on his knees before God, and ask God, God, what do you think of my story? Within minutes, Bob, Bobby came bouncing out of the room into the kitchen. Well, son, what did God think about your story? Asked the father. Well, replied Bobby, God told me that when he first saw the dog, he thought it was a bear too. <laughs> <laughs> What does God think and how, and how would we think and live if we truly understood that God is near? If we truly had his thinking on the matter, if, he, if we thought the same thing he thought about our circumstances, if he thought the same thing about those things that we're going through. Now the Lord is near could mean one of two things. and They both make sense here. It could mean that the Lord is near temporally, in time. In other words, that the Lord is near. He's coming again soon. 
And we sang some of those great songs this morning about the coming of our Lord. And in this case, Paul is saying, in light of the impending coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he already gave urgent exhortation, where we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's more than a little incentive to be gentle and to be selfless. The Lord's return provides incentive. There's not much time to live out what John writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be what? Like him, because we will see him just as he is. And then he continues, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. How pure do you want to be when Jesus returns? How gentle? How much like Jesus do you want to be? What would you like to be doing when Jesus comes again? What would you like to be saying when Jesus comes again? What would you like to be thinking when Jesus comes again? Now, if you're like me, most of us can think of what we'd not like to be doing when that happens. What we'd be thinking, doing, or saying when Jesus comes again. But the Lord is near could be temporal, referring to the coming of Christ. And that, that's pretty good incentive. It could also be what we call spatial. He's not far off. He is near. He is here. How can we give ourselves to self-promotion when Jesus is sitting, standing with us? He's right here with us. Once again, we find this in the, the Psalms. If you would like to turn to Psalm 145, the 145th Psalm. Psalm 145 at verse 17. Here the psalmist is once again referring to the character of God, the character of God. Psalm 145, beginning at verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. We've seen gentle forbearance. We've seen mercy. Now we've got, and we see goodness, the loving kindness. Now we see he is kind in all his ways, everything he does. So what does that have to do with me? Verse 18, the Lord is near. To all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. You know, unfortunately, when we face trials, when we're going through the stuff, we often seem to forget what we know about God, don't we? We tend to lose our confidence, our trust in him. We lose our self-control. We lose our spiritual stability. And when this happens, we are defeated because we have forgotten about God and that he is near. Even strong believers are not immune to an occasional lapse. We see this incident or see this happen in an incident in the life of David. When David was running from King Saul, King Saul was chasing him all over the place, relentless pursuit. And David sought asylum in the Philistine city of Gath happened to be the same city from which Goliath was from. What a dumb place to go. I don't think they like you there, David. In Star Trek, in just about every one of the Star Trek movies, there's a phrase where uh, Captain Kirk has to be reminded that the Cleons don't like you very much. <laughs> and we have the same kind of thing here. I don't think the Philistines like you in Gath, David. They're, they're probably bearing a 
a grudge. You did kill Goliath. How amazingly stupid we get when we forget that God is near. Some of the Philistines recognized David and said to Achish, the king of Gath, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands? And realizing that his identity had become known to the Philistines, David greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Instead of trusting God to deliver him, David panicked. And he disguised his sanity before the Philistines, and he acted insanely in their hands. He scribbled on the doors of the gate and let the saliva run down into his beard. That is not a picture of spiritual stability. That is not Philippians 4 at all. David was driven by emotions of fear rather than what he knew of God. But his act did produce the desired results. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving like a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? I really love that question. Any shortage of madmen here in the palace or where I'm at? Do I have a shortage of madmen? That you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence. Shall this one come into my house? And as a result, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And there sitting in the lonely cave with the crisis past, David had time to reflect. How's this working for you, David? How did that go for you? How should you have handled the situation at Gath? In Psalm 57, the 57th Psalm, written at the time when David sat in that cave, as he had time to think about, as he had time to seek God again, he reaffirmed the truths about God that he had temporarily forgotten. Psalm 57, verse 1. David prays, sitting in a cave, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah, which is probably a musical term for pause. Think about this, Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And remembering the character of God restored David's spiritual stability and his joy. It enabled him to declare in verse 7 of this 57th Psalm, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. When Jan and I moved back to Emmett the first time, when I took my lovely bride back to my hometown in Emmett and we were newly married, we had the distinct pleasure of moving into my parents' basement. (laughs) Every young couple wants to live in the basement of the the parents' house. And of all things at this time, we bought a Newfoundland puppy. At 12 weeks old, 10 or 12 weeks old, she already weighed 30 pounds, and she was black fur, and we called her Midnight Cascade, Cassie. Cassie, 30 pounds of black furriness, 
and she looked just like a bear cub. I can believe that little kid who thought he saw a bear. People would come into my dad's shop behind the house and they would see the puppy in the yard and they would stand and they would look at it and go, what is that? <laughs> they, she looked just like a bear cub. And at the time, my first architecture project was designing a house for Dr. Ralph Nicely. M many of you probably remember Dr. Nicely. It was up, it's up on the base of, of the Little Butte. And Dr. Nicely was a world-renowned expert in nuclear medicine. He had written over 50, page, 50 papers on the subject, and he, he moved to Emmett so he could serve a small community and just do this small-town doctoring stuff in his slowing-down years. He was a great man. One day, Dr. Nicely came over to my parents' house where we were living so he could talk about his house plans, and he came in the back door, up the steps, and, and into the kitchen. And as he came into the kitchen, he saw this big black, puppy come out to greet him, this big ball of fur. And I will never forget what I saw. This great man of medicine got down on the kitchen floor, sat down on the kitchen floor, and he took what was by this time about 50 pounds of black furriness, and he, he rocked her and cradled her. Oh, you know. And I thought, we're never going to get to the house plans, you know. That, that beautiful gentleness for, for several minutes. That's something of the gentle spirit of God and how he responds to us, how he loves us, how he cares for us, how he comforts us, and who calls us to be gentle spirits, for our gentle spirits to be made known to all, to manifest something of the character of God. Just before our son Ben was two years old, he got spinal meningitis, and we almost lost him. And when we finally got Ben home after two long hospital stays, Ben was so weak that he had to learn how to walk all over again. He had to learn much of how to talk all over again. And by this time, big black furball Cassie weighed 125 pounds. 125 pounds of black furnace. But somehow Cassie knew what God had made her for. Cassie would stand on the floor next to Ben, where Ben was down on the floor. And Ben would reach up and grab in her hair and pull himself up. It had to hurt. But Cassie just goes, this is what I was made for. <laughs> this is what I am supposed to do. This is my purpose in life. And she would just stand there steadfastly, power under control, gentleness. And she exhibited this great gentleness as Ben did this time and time again. And she helped him to walk around the room. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. You know, we're just starting to hit on why we can be anxious for nothing and not worry about anything. Maybe you're wondering why we're taking so long to get to that scripture passage in, in Philippians. Because we have to lay all of this foundation the Lord who is near is the Almighty. He is the true and living God revealed to us in Scripture and by His Holy Spirit. And those who delight themselves in His holy power, in His love, in His wisdom, and those who cultivate a deep knowledge and relationship with Him by studying and meditating on His Word will live by the foundation of the truth and will be spiritually stable. 
Because of the presence of God, believers are to be anxious for nothing, to have no worries. Nothing is outside of our sovereign God that is too difficult for him to handle. He is meek. He is gentle. And weak, struggling, unstable Christians need to build their strength on the strength of who God is. Worry, anxiousness, fear, and a host of other ills all result from a low view of God or forgetting who God is. But we have to wait until next week to see how that works out in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that you have shown us through the example of Jesus Christ what it means to be truly meek and gentle. You have shown us through other believers who come alongside us and support us and care for us and nurture us with gentleness and with truth. And Father, I pray that as we continue to study these marvelous words and this, the words of the Lord in Philippians chapter 4, and Father, kind of setting the stage for next week, do not be anxious for anything. Worry, don't worry about anything, some of the translations say, Father. Oh, what a hard thing to do, Father. So I pray that even in this week, you will call our hearts and our minds, that you will help us to bring uh, particular scripture passages uh, to mind that will help us and support us and encourage us. Father, that uh, we will have the wherefore all to, to get into your word this week. And, and Lord, just say, show me what you want me to know about this. In other words, Father, please, I want you to prepare our hearts for this incredible but very important portion of scripture that we will look at next week. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.